A young up-and-coming journalist named Daniel Lebowski emailed me a question today, and it was a good one. He wrote, how do you not view revisions and mass edit suggestions as an indictment of your abilities as a writer? I've heard you talk about this a lot. It's really difficult. Daniel, here's the answer. I do view edit suggestions as an indictment of my ability as a writer. Always. I want the reader to say, boy, that was terrific. Don't change a word. I want her to love it all and tell me it's perfect and say, man, you just nailed it. But that just doesn't happen very often. So here's what you do. You suck it up. You listen. You keep an open mind. You know that things can always improve and that even Hemingway and Hunter S. Thompson had their stuff shredded. It's okay to take it personally, but just know that it's nothing personal. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Angie Thomas, the New York Times bestselling author of five books, including one of my all-time, all-time favorites, The Hate You Give. This is episode number 212. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. You're losing your hair. So, Andy, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I was reading The Hate You Give. I am dazzled and amazed and inspired by your rise. And I was saying to my wife yesterday, she was a freaking unknown writer like five years ago. Like, yeah. And, and I was reading your old, old, old blog about how you got your first book deal. But I feel like I can't really exp- do it justice. You wrote this really kind of awesome blog post about the curves and twists and it involves Twitter and it involves agents and fine and blah, blah, blah. You were an unknown young woman in Mississippi. And then what happens? Yeah, so the funny thing is today is actually the anniversary of when I sent that tweet. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... um. At the time, I was a college, recent college graduate. Well, not too recent, but recent enough. Um, I was working at a church as a secretary, and I'd been working on a book for a couple of years. Um, And I'd been sending it out to agents. It was a fantasy book. It was for younger readers. And I'd been sending it out to agents, revising it, sending it out to agents again for a while. And I kept getting rejections, um, hundreds of them. And I decided at some point to take this short story that I'd written in college as part of my senior project and turn it into a novel. Um, the short story when I, when I was in college was inspired by the shooting death of a young man named Oscar Grant in Oakland, California. Although I didn't know him personally, at the time I took his death very personally. And I wrote that short story about this boy named Khalil who was a lot like Oscar and a girl named Star who navigated two different worlds like me. Um, And at first it was just gonna be a senior project for school. But several years later, after going through all the rejections with this other manuscript, um, I kept thinking back to that short story, especially with the things that were happening at the time. We'd seen the death of Trayvon Martin. We'd seen the death of Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland. And all of these conversations were happening around the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And I was I had all of these things that I was feeling. And then I'm hearing young people in my community talk about how, you know, when Trayvon Martin is called a thug, it makes them feel as if they're being called a thug. And as someone who's a writer, 
I'm wondering, well, what can I do to talk to these kids to say, I see you, I understand you, I love you. I decided, hmm, that short story I wrote, maybe I should give it another go and turn it into a full length novel. So I started working on it while I worked at the church. I would work on this book in between lunch breaks or when phone calls stopped coming in. I was writing all these curse words while sitting in the church. <laughs> You're like, she's sure but, is busy. She's really yeah, busy. Yeah. She's doing a great job. They, Look at her typing all the time. Yeah, that, they thought that. They really did. <laughs> but at first I wasn't sure it was something that would be published. I didn't think it would... I could get an agent with it because for one, the lack of diversity in kids lit, you know, the, when I was writing this book, um, a study had come out saying that there were more books featuring animals and trucks as the main characters than black kids. So that's discouraging. And then the subject matter, you know, if you say black lives matter to three different people, you're going to get 30 different reactions. And I just, I wasn't sure. So as I was working on it and finishing up a draft, um, I decided, you know what, if this doesn't go anywhere, I'll just print copies out and give it to the kids around the neighborhood myself. You know, <laughs> um, I used to be a rapper. I know about slinging demo tapes and stuff around the neighborhood, so I could do that same thing. But I, a um, literary agency held a Q&A on Twitter, and I simply asked if a subject matter like this was appropriate for a young adult novel and an agent responded and said, yeah, he'd actually like to read it. So I finished up writing it and I sent it to him and he loved it. And he signed me as a client and worked with me on the manuscript to polish it up a little more. We submitted it to publishers and 13 US publishers fought for the rights to the book. Wait, so... wait, 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 time out. <laughs> I have to go back. You're on Twitter. Yes. Like you're on Uh huh. Like Everyone's like, because people say to me, how do you find an agent? And my number one go-to is go to a bookstore, find books that are similar to yours, go to the acknowledgement section and see who they think is their agent. The idea mm -hmm. that you would find an agent on Twitter seems like trying to, like, I need a rock. I'll go to Jupiter and try to find a rock. <laughs> like, how does that, you just tweet at the guy and he tweets you back and says, I'd like to read it? Well, well they were having a Q&A for aspiring writers, aspiring authors. And it was just ask any questions about writing, about publishing um, that you'd like to ask. And so um, I queried this agent before and he'd rejected my other manuscript twice. Right. So I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to ask if this subject matter is even appropriate. Now, I will say this. People don't traditionally get agents off of Twitter. Like usually you <laughs> need to email them, you know, email them your query letter, blah, blah, blah your manuscript. But for me, it was a, a thing of, hey, I'm going to make this initial contact. So during the Q&A, um, I just, I, I asked the question. I was like, hey, I'm writing this book. It's a young adult novel and it deals with things surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement. Is this something that could even, you know, be, is this something you think publishers would even be interested in? And the agent, he, one of the agents at the agency responded and he was like, I don't think any topic is off limits when it comes to kids lit. It's just about how you approach it. And I'd actually like to read that if you're okay with it. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm okay with it. So um, I sent him a query letter, um, which is a summary of the book, as well as the first 10 pages or so. Right. Um, and he read it and asked for the full manuscript. And so I sent him the full manuscript and then he signed, he said, can we talk on the phone? 
and we had a conversation and he told me how much he loved it and he wanted to represent me um, as a client. So that's that's breaking it down a little bit more. <laughs> and when you when you send him the full manuscript, are you more of the mindset? I know I'm a good writer. I know he's going to like this. This is going to be great. Or are you of the mindset? This probably isn't going to work. But what the hell? It's just another sending a manuscript to a guy. Yeah, it was a. This probably isn't going to work because, <laughs> um, you know, we you get like over a hundred rejections. You're just used to people being like, nope, nope, nope. You know, um, it, it, and you really, in a way, almost become a, a glutton for self punishment <laughs> right. because you're 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 putting part of yourself out there whenever you let someone read anything you wrote, and and it's it's exposing a very sensitive part of yourself at times, especially with the material like this one. So I'm thinking, yep, no, just prepare yourself. It's going to be a thanks, but no thanks. So when he was like, I love it. I'd love to talk. I was shocked. The rejection letters you would get, were they all just informal? No, 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 no. Thank you for submitting. Or were there, were there people who are like, yeah, this is, this is not good enough or your writing isn't good enough or this story doesn't work or blah, blah, blah. It was usually just what they call form um, rejections, which is uh, a, a little copy paste thing that agents do where they're like, thank you, but this doesn't um, this doesn't fit my tastes or this isn't the right project for me. Um, but again, thank you for the opportunity, you know, <laughs> so I, I was not getting anything detailed or um, personalized at all. So when I got this personalized email from him saying, oh, wow, I love this. Here's what I love. I'd love to discuss it more. I was stunned. So when that happens, he says, I want to talk about it more. I love this, blah, blah, blah. How does it quickly sort of, how does the temperature quickly get turned up? It's turned up pretty quickly because I'd already sent it out to other agents as well. And I had to let them know, hey, this agent has read it and loved it. And he's offering me representation could you let me know if you like it? And several others did. Um, they quickly read it because there's something about agents. If one agent loves something that makes the others hop on it real quick and they're like, let me see what this is about. And several others did love it and, and wanted to talk to me as well. So I had a couple of phone calls. Um, so I suddenly went from feeling like nobody wants anything I write to, oh, wow, quite a few people want something that I write. Wait, I just love the idea that there are agents out there right now and someone's like, uh, hey, daddy, did you did you ever get a did you ever get anything from this woman who wrote the hate you give? And the dad's like, no. Why are you asking? No. no. Shut up. Eat your Wheaties. No. Well, you know, the funny thing about it, I'm not going to call anybody's name out or anything, but there was um, a couple of agents who rejected it. And once the book came out. They were tweeting about how much they loved it. And I'm like, I remember you turned it down at the very beginning. So that's to say, you know, I, I hope that anybody who is a writer who has gotten a lot of rejections, I hope you know that sometimes it's not, it's really not you or your writing. It's just their palette at that moment. And it can change because um, I've seen proof of it multiple times. Several agents who turned me down um, now talk about how much they love the hate you give and love my writing. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, if we're being honest, like half of them probably got your submission, never read it. Half of them probably told the intern to read the first five pages. And the intern was like, I don't know, you know, like the odds that all of those people read your even touched your manuscript is a big zero. Yeah. You know? Yep. But it worked out for the best. I'm happy with how it worked out. 
I'm telling you, your rise is to me is just one of the most fascinating. It's just a really hopeful freaking story. It really is. It's like a really hopeful story. You have this agent. When are you first aware that this thing could become a really big book? When he submitted it to HarperCollins, an editor at HarperCollins by the name of Donna Bray. Um, and within 24 hours, she was making an offer. That's when I knew because that's fast. <laughs> like he submitted it on like a Thursday evening. And by like Friday afternoon, she was calling him saying she'd like an offer, like to offer. Um, and that's when I knew I said, okay, yeah, there, there's something here. But then when we started getting all the other offers, all 12 others for a total of 13, um, that's when I really knew at the time, like there for a debut author, that was unheard of having a 13 publishing house auction. I didn't even know there were 13 publishers. So to have that, that was incredible. You went to Belhaven University. Mm -hmm. A school, no offense, most people have not heard of, right? Exactly. <laughs> you, you were working in a church. I mean, mm -hmm. it is insane. It is insane. It is the best freaking story. So these offers are coming in. And are you just like, are you telling your friends and family like, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap? <laughs> yes. Yes. I would have to take like, because I was talking to the different editors and I would take phone calls in my car in the parking lot. So like I would have to tell my boss, okay, I got to run downstairs for a call. And my, my supervisor, she, at, at first she was just like, oh, but after a while she was just like, okay, let me know how it's going. You know, they were getting excited too, but it, it was, it was the most intense week of my life. <laughs> And like, it wasn't long after that, that the Hollywood stuff started happening. I feel like rejection is a death for a lot of writers. People yes. sitting on your work, telling you this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. You're getting one rejection letter after another. Um, how do you maintain your confidence and keep your sort of, keep your sort of mojo when you're getting told over and over again, no, 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 no. Well, it was hard. I'm not going to lie. It was super hard. But thankfully, I had a good support system. Um, for one, my mom, you know, my mom, she would remind me, this is your dream. Nobody said a dream is easy to achieve. And, and she said, and, and just because you're getting all these no's doesn't mean you won't get one yes. All it takes is one yes. And that's totally true. I had to remember that all it takes is one yes to change everything. I don't care how many no's you get. If you get that one yes, that can be it. And, and that, that helped me a lot, but also just remembering too, that this is my dream. This is what I want to do. Um, this is what I'm passionate about. And, and I just had to have faith. It, it was hard though. It was super hard. I wanted to give up so much, but thinking about where I wanted to be in my life and what I ultimately wanted to do and knowing that working at that church as a secretary was not the big plan that I had for my life. And, and, and knowing that that wasn't my ultimate goal or my ultimate dream and reminding myself this is temporary, that helped a whole lot too. So sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard. But again, reminding yourself that it only takes one yes. And then too, reading stories of people who have found success um, can be inspiring as well. I would read stories of authors who found their agents or their agents found them and they were suddenly getting published and all these things. That helped a lot too. So I, for anybody out there who's getting the rejections right now, 
my heart goes out to you. It hurts. It sucks. It is one of the worst feelings sometimes. But again, only one yes. That's all you need. One yes can change everything. So I was reading your book and I was thinking about, um, I read The Hate You Give. You've read other books, obviously. And um, in a lot of ways, I don't know if you ever read, did you ever read the book, uh, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien? I've heard of it. One of my all-time favorite books. And um, your book and The Things They Carried, they just, I kept thinking about that book in your approach to dialogue. You're one of the best dialogue writers I've ever seen, if not the best dialogue writer I've ever seen. And I don't think it's easy. And I always say to people like, um, to like young writers, it's a trick because you're writing how someone talks, but it's not actually how they would talk. Like, cause you're writing dialogue, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if the person were standing next to you, they would actually talk literally as it's written on the page, but it's supposed to sound exactly like someone would talk as it's written on the page, which isn't right. What's your, what is your approach to dialogue? Mm-hmm. I say it out loud as I'm writing. (laughs) Um, I can no longer write in public because people look at me like I've lost my mind. But yeah, I say it out loud. Um, I I say it kind of under my breath at times. Um, I think the best way to write dialogue or the best way to learn how to write dialogue is to be a good listener. You have to listen to how people talk. You have to listen to speech patterns. You have to listen to the way people cut themselves off with their words or their sentences, this and that. Um, Because the fact of the matter is none of us speak, quote unquote, perfect English 24-7. We we don't use complete sentences all the time. Um, we, We don't we don't speak in paragraphs a lot. <laughs> we we have we have our own speech patterns. We have our own way of speaking and everybody talks differently. Um, everybody has their own patterns. So I listen a lot. I, I listen to the way people talk. I listen when I'm out and about like I can be in a coffee shop. I'm listening to how people talk with one another. Um, And then when I'm writing, I'm listening to the dialogue as I say it out loud to make sure it actually sounds like something that would come out of someone's mouth. Um, Like right now I'm working on middle grade, which is, you know, younger, the main character is 12. And I have to remind myself, there are certain phrases and words a 12 year old is not going to use that a 16, 17 year old would. So um, like, for instance, I was writing a line yesterday where she was saying it's it looks like a church on steroids. I'm like, but would a 12 year old really say something about steroids? Probably not. So I cut that out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, again, it's about hearing and listening. Once you pay attention to how people talk in the real world, you will take those things with you and put it into your writing and it'll come out naturally. Is it hard as you get older to channel the language of a 2021 20, 12 year old or a 2021 20, year old 16 year old is there mm-hmm. you know because the worst thing would be sounding like a 30 something writing in the voice of a 12 year old yeah 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 you know i was intimidated by it i was i was scared by it because i'm not around a lot of 12 year olds if any at all right and i what i had to do was i won i've read books about 12 year olds, specifically popular books about 12 year olds or 11 year olds or whatever it may be. Um, Because if they're popular, that means kids are reading them. And that means that kids think that they're good. So this writer isn't sounding like an adult talking to kids. It sounds like a kid talking to kids. So I read, I read a lot. Um, And then again, listening. And sometimes listening means watching the YouTube channels these kids would watch. 
paying attention to the TikTok videos these kids pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, you have to kind of, my rule of thumb is this. If you're going to write about young people, whether it's 12-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, you need to respect the real 12-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. Respect what they like. Respect how they talk. Respect what music they like. Respect what TV shows they watch. Respect them as human beings. Because if you don't respect them, it's going to show in your writing. You're going to write like you're talking down to them, like you're judging them, like you're teaching them, like you're preaching to them. And they're not reading to be taught. They're not reading to be preached to. They're reading for entertainment. And yeah, you can teach them through that entertainment. But if you take the approach of this is going to be a lesson book, it's going to come off as a lesson book and they're not going to want to read it. So if you immerse yourself in the things that they enjoy and and take the time to figure those things out, um, the respect you have for them will show in your writing. So I try to respect kids where they are. Um, like the other day, my little cousin came over and she's eight years old and she loves Roblox. And I was like, what is this? And she's like, let me show you. So like, she's already told me she's going to help me set up an account. Um, she's going to FaceTime me through the process, you know? So it's, again, it's listening to the kids and respecting them where they are. And that'll help you be a better writer for them. I feel like the moment, like I have a nephew who I listen to all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time, he was saying like, blah, blah, blah on fleek. Like on fleek was the thing five years ago. If you wrote uh-huh. down now, you'd expose yourself immediately. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Um, I try not to, especially with this book right now, I'm trying not to put too much slang in it. Like with the hate you give, I tried to avoid slang. I did put some things in it, like the nene in it that I felt now I'm like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that, you know, because that was a dance back then. Uh-huh. I wish I wouldn't have done that because it dated it. But there are some things that I think, it's okay to put in, I, not so much slang, but some cultural things that are okay to put in because you're respecting kids where they are right now at that moment. And then when people look back on the book, yeah, it may date it, but it's going to show you what a young person was like at that time. Yeah. You know, we read books all the time. We read the classics. You know, we read the books in the canon. Kids are reading The Outsiders still. And there are things in those books that are not relevant to today, slang terms and and cultural things, but they are from a moment in time and they preserve that moment in time. And kids still enjoy those books. So again, it's, it's about picking and choosing how much you do put in and not overdoing it. So it doesn't overly date the book but it re- still respects young people at that time frame um, at that moment. Here's a weird question for you. My first book came out in 2004. It's still my best-selling book. I read it and cringe. Like I do not, I look at that book with a lot of regret. Like oh, I left that on the table. I left that on the table. All these people are like, oh, Angie, the hate you give, the hate you give, the hate you give. It's the best book, it's the best book. Or do you read it now sort of that you're, you've moved on into your career? And are there parts of that book where you're like, ah, like, why did I do that? One? that <laughs> or, are you, or are you like, this is the greatest book ever and shut up. Oh, no, no, no. I, I have not read The Hate You Give from beginning to end since I turned it in to my editor. <laughs> I have not. Now, the last time I read through it was while working on Concrete Rose. Um, I looked through and read things about Maverick, bits and pieces about Maverick. Since Concrete Rose is about him at 17, I wanted to look back at him as an adult in The Hate You Give and see what I could take from adult Maverick and put into 17-year-old Maverick. So 
I went through and I just purposely just read some Maverick stuff and not all of it. Right. Um, I only read a few things um, because I can't read my books. I've not read. I haven't read Concrete Rose since I turned it in. Um, I haven't read On the Come Up since I turned it in. I just I can't because I will. I will be that person who's like, oh, I wish I could change this. I wish I could change that. Like a prime example is with The Hate You Give when I read the film script. And there's a scene at the end of the movie with Star's little brother, Sakani, that's not in the book. And I think it's a very powerful scene. And I remember reading that scene in the script and immediately calling my editor and being like, they did this in the movie. I would love to <laughs> edit the book and put this in the book. And she's like, no, the book is out. Are you crazy? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so how are you talking about <laughs> right i cannot i cannot i can't like the closest i get to rereading it is i'll listen to the audio books um oh. you know I, I i love i love listening to audio books and i do like listening to my own audio books one time that's it so no i don't i can't i don't even read reviews um i don't read reviews like once the book is done for me it's done it's out there it's a baby bird it can fly out of the nest and do its thing. I got to tell you, my last two audiobooks they butchered so many names. I started oh. listening. I was so excited. And I'm like, this is going to be great. And then every athlete's name was butchered. Then another oh. one, my lab, my most recent book about the Lakers came out. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to give it another same thing. I was like, I can't, I can't <laughs> listen to this. Wait, how can somebody butcher names for Lakers? It was like opposing oh. players, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was just, it was one after another. Oh. And then people write you and they're like, man, you really screwed up your book. And I'm like, it wasn't me. It wasn't yeah. Me. Yeah. I don't think people realize how little we have control over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going old school on you again. You're on your old blog, which was great, by the way. You wrote a thing way long ago called uh, Dealing with Writer's Blocks and Other Things. And you wrote, um, blah, blah, blah. Finish line was so close. Then the worst thing happened. Writer's block attacked. Uh, I don't mean your regular writer's block either. I mean the I doubt every single word. I'm ready to throw this manuscript out the window. I don't know why I ever thought I could do this kind of writer's block. It's frustrating and it's draining. This sucker has literally brought me to tears. Lately, I doubt if a person like me could even be a writer. Um, what do you mean by that? Lately, I doubt if a person like me could even be a writer. Well, you know, I... I often doubted that I could be a writer. Even as a kid, I loved telling stories, but I doubted that I could be a writer because for one, I wasn't used to seeing a lot of writers from neighborhoods like mine who looked like me, you know, that I could relate to. I'm from Mississippi. Mississippi has a rich literary history. I mean, you know, from um, William Faulkner to Eudora Welty, her house was right across the street from my college. Um, to Richard Wright. My grandfather was Richard Wright's childhood best friend. They grew up together. So I grew up hearing about all these wonderful writers from Mississippi, but all of them were either old, dead, or white. And I was neither. Yeah. <laughs> and I often questioned if someone like me from a neighborhood like mine, a black girl from Mississippi from the hood could, you know, write. I was, when I was working on that blog, I was still living in the neighborhood where I grew up hearing gunshots at night. Um, in fact, I remember one evening while working on the Hate You Give, a guy was killed in the middle of the street, just two houses down from me. So I wasn't seeing writers from communities like mine. I wasn't used to that. Um, and I wondered at times if this was a career path for 
someone from a background like mine. Um, then even to going to a college that was mostly white, upper class, private, um, 10 minutes away from where I grew up, but a totally different world. Um, classmates who were on going on trips, mission trips to Africa or vacationing in France with their families. And here I am, I've never left Mississippi, you know, um, wondering if, because I don't feel like I fit in here, do I belong here? Is this a career path for me? So those feelings of doubt and questioning it came from all of those various factors. Um, and I remember, I kind of remember writing that blog and I kind of remember being very frustrated with the process and questioning myself and doubting every word that I wrote. Um, but if I could go back, I would tell Angie of that time that, yeah, you are supposed to do this. And yeah, being different, honestly, is a great thing. Coming from a different background than most of the writers you know means that you're bringing a different perspective. Um, coming from a different, being a different race than a lot of the writers you see prominently just means you have a very different perspective that needs to be heard as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't give in to the doubt. Here's a weird question. I feel like mm -hmm. you are, oftentimes when you read about you, people say, and it kind of pisses me off actually, people say like one of the bright young black voices in America. Or one, and I'm like, she's just a freaking great writer. Like she's a great writer. Like <laughs> it, it actually like, it annoys me to a certain degree when people say one of the young black writers in America. And it's like, no, she's just a freaking great writer. But then on the other hand, it does seem like part of your, part of the, the kick you get out of all this is inspiring young African-American writers. So like, yes. I am interested how you feel about that. Like, cause you, in one way you're pigeonholed. And if you all of a sudden wanted to write a book about a bunch of white kids in suburban Connecticut, you should be able to mm -hmm. do that. How do you feel about that? Well, from a representation standpoint, I'm thankful to be in the position I'm in so that I can inspire those young black kids who want to write. But at the same time, it's kind of like you say, you know, I, I do wish that it wasn't just, I'm just categorized as being just a great black writer. I wish it was, you know, that I'm seen as a great writer. Um, you know, identifying me and categorizing me are two different things. If you're going to identify me and say, oh, she's a black writer, fine. But if all you're going to see me as is just being a great black writer in the sense of um, in comparison to other, just other black writers that does pigeonhole all of us as if to say we're other, you know, um, black writers are writers, period. And we shouldn't be othered. And we still see it happening so much in the industry and publishing, you know, um, if you go into a bookstore, you have urban fiction and then you have romance. Well, why can't urban romance be in the romance section? Why does it have to be othered? You know, um, so again, and it, and it goes to you see it with how publishing did for so long and assuming that black kids don't read. So let's not get a lot of black books. And, and then too, they assume that other kids won't read about black kids. And that's proven a lie every single day. I mean, your daughter was just here a little while ago telling me how much she loves my books. And since this is a podcast, I want to say my daughter, yeah. not African-American. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. But I'm saying, you know, five, 10 years ago, publishing wouldn't have thought that that was possible. Right. So, you know, I, I hate being seen as just, 
as only a great black writer and not just a great writer period, but I have no problem with being with people recognizing that, yeah, I am a black woman and I write, but don't act as if I'm only great when it comes to black writers. Now, let me put this out there. I don't think I'm great, but I'm glad other people do. But, uh, (laughs) but if you're going to say I'm great, just say I'm a great writer. You don't have to say I'm great for a black writer, you know? (laughs) Actually, I was wondering something. Um, so my daughter came in at the beginning. She's a huge admirer of your work. She's read all your books. And she's a white kid in suburban California, right? And I mean, we come from actually a, a very diverse family background that I won't go into, but um, when you see white kids like that saying, whatever, the heat you give did something for me, right? Is that just like, yeah, okay, that's cool. Or do you think to yourself, man, this is this is kind of important work exposing these kids maybe to things their parents didn't see or exposing them to things that their parents aren't telling them and should be telling them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's wonderful. Um, and, and I know it's powerful because there's so much pushback against it. We're seeing it right now heavily. There's so much pushback on teaching about racism in school. There's so much pushback about having diverse books, some of these diverse books in classrooms. Like if you look at the most banned book list, Um, for this past year, most of the books dealt with racism or had LGBTQIA characters in them. And a lot of times it's white parents and white administrators pushing back saying, we don't want our kids exposed to this. You don't want them to know about what black, some black people are dealing with in this country, whereas black kids have to know about it. They go through it, they deal with it. Um, So when I hear from kids like your daughter who are like, I love your books um, and and they're young people who maybe I didn't even imagine would have loved my books. It gives me hope. It gives me so much hope and it shows how important it is. Um, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishops often says that books are either mirrors, windows or sliding glass doors. And yeah, the mirrors are important, but so are those windows and sliding glass doors. And that's what I want to show people that through my books, I'm giving white kids in suburban California windows and sliding glass doors to understand lives unlike their own so that they can grow up to be leaders who have a different perspective than current leaders. I, I have to think that if some of our current and not and past, thankfully past political leaders, <laughs> I have to think if they read books about black kids written by black authors when they were kids, maybe we wouldn't have to say black lives matter. It would be understood. If they read books about Latinx kids when they were kids written by Latinx authors, maybe we wouldn't be talking about building walls, but bridges. I have to believe that that's the power of literature for young people. Um, That's the power of giving them those windows and those sliding glass doors. It opens their eyes. It changes their perspectives. It exposes them to lives beyond their own and it makes them better human beings. I have to believe that. Oscar Grant's murder back in 2009 ended up being the Fruitvale Station motivation for the movie by Mm -hmm. Brian Coogler. But why did that? I mean, sadly, there's no shortage of young black men being harassed and actually murdered by police officers in America. Why did that one of all the different cases sort of inspire you? That one, Oscar, well, let me go back. I'd heard about incidents a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'd heard about things happening in Mississippi, obviously. I'd heard about things happening in other places. But what was so different about Oscar and his death was that it was caught on tape. Um, Oscar was kind of pre-social media, so there was no hashtag. However, there were cell phones with cameras in 2009. And people recorded Oscar's death. You saw him lying on his stomach, hands behind his back, unable to move. And you see the cops shoot him in the back. Um, And... At first, when it happened, my assumption was it was caught on tape. I've heard these stories. I've heard about police brutality before, but it's never caught on tape. This was caught on tape. They have to do something this time. You know, there's no denying it. There's no denying that this was wrong. Somebody has to be held accountable. And even with the tape, there was no accountability. There was no justice. And that was a slap in the face. And for me, that was the moment when I realized yeah, we got to speak up about this. We got to speak out about this. And the only way I knew to speak up and speak out was through writing. So yeah, with Oscar, it was about the fact that it was on tape. Um, because the only other debt, well, the only other instance of police brutality that had been caught on tape, really up until that point, had been the Rodney King beating. Yeah. And so with that one i was little i was a super little kid when that happened and i definitely didn't know about it or understand what was happening at the time but with oscar here i was i was in college i saw the video i saw this young man lose his life on video not get just beat which was horrible you know i'm not going to take away from what happened to rodney king but oscar died and it was on tape and they were still not held accountable for his death. That lit something within me. So I I think it was that. And then too, hearing my white classmates try to justify why what happened to him was okay. um, That really um, lit the fire within me. So uh, those two factors alone, they're they're the reason. It's weird. I actually thought the, uh, I went to a public school, but in upstate New York, very racist neck of the woods. And a lot of the dialogue, I just thought it was really well done, the sort of dialogue of white privileged students, just like the subtle little things, like how you talked about how when you go to a school and there are like two or three black students, the other students are just going to assume those students are going to date each other. You nailed it like you lived it. I was the only black student in my creative writing program. I was the first black student to graduate from the creative writing program at that school. Um, so a lot of times I was in classes and I was the only black person there. Um, and I had several different instances. Um, and then too, just daily microaggressions thrown at me, you know, microaggressions are those subtle forms of racism. Um, so it was things like, you know, when slavery is being discussed in the class, everybody's looking at me as if I have the answers, (laughs) it's, you know, um, it's everybody assuming that, you know, Thursday's fried chicken day. Oh, you definitely eating in the cafeteria today, right? It's fried chicken day. Why would you assume that? You know, um, but you know, the worst it, part is obviously I'm in no place to lecture you about the worst part of it. But like, no, no, how people expect you that to then laugh and be like, oh, oh yeah, oh, you know, like oh, yeah. that is the stuff that burns my freaking. Yes, yes, yes. That me too. Me too. That was that was definitely something um, that I you know, and at first, at first I'd force myself to laugh um, because I thought I had to in order to fit in. I had to in order to be accepted. And I learned quickly, well, not quickly, but eventually 
that no, I don't have to laugh. And I think sometimes the best thing we can do in a situation like that is not laugh because you show the person this isn't funny. This is actually uncomfortable. And it makes them rethink what they're saying and doing. So I, I stopped forcing myself to laugh at the little jokes. Um, I, I stopped forcing myself to, to be whatever I needed to be to make us comfortable. Um, and somehow, some way at that little liberal arts private white school in the middle of conservative Mississippi, I started becoming a little more radical. <laughs> that's awesome. and I'm appreciative of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, let me see a final question. Every book I've ever written has been uh, nonfiction and every book I've written comes with an ending. Um, the 86 Mets season ended, Walter Payton died, Brett Favre's career ended, you know, like they all come with an ending. The thing that intimidates me about fiction, I'm not making this up, I swear, is the completion of it and having a wrap and knowing how to wrap it. I was interested, like when you go into a book project, do you have a full outline going in? Do you know the beginning, the middle, the end, this is how it's going to go? Or are you just making it up as you go along to a certain degree? Side note, um, I did tell you my mom went to college with Walter Payton, right? Jackson State. Yeah. Yes. Yes. She she knew him. Um, she 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 knew his wife, his eventual wife. She knew him. She hung out with him a lot. So um, if you ever want to get some Walter Payton stories from my mom, I will connect you to. Yeah. She know there's a book out there about Walter Payton. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. I, yeah. We I have a copy of your book. So um, but <laughs> all right. As far as endings go, I usually know my end before I know the beginning. How's that um, possible? <laughs> I know who or what or where I want this character to be at the end of whatever story it is that I'm going to tell about them. Um, with the hate you give, I knew that the ending would be that there's been all of these riots um, throughout the neighborhood. And I knew that the family would be, I'm not going to spoil the book, but I knew that the family would be in a position where they would have to start fresh um, as far as some things go. I knew that from the beginning. And I knew too that at the end, Star will have found her voice. The question was, how do I get to that? Um, with On the Come Up, I knew that at the end, Brie would see some glimmer, a glimmer of light in her tunnel. She would see um, some sort of opportunity brought her way to help her fulfill her dream. I knew that. And I also knew that at the end, she would decide to define herself. Concrete Rose, I knew at the beginning that Maverick's ending would be where he has decided to define what manhood is for himself. Um, I knew that he and Lisa would be in a place of new beginnings. Um, and I knew, I'm not going to spoil it, I knew that his life would also be at the brink of another big change. Um, I'm, again, I'm not going to spoil it, but I knew that from the beginning. So I always ask myself, who do I want this character to be at the end of this? How do I get them there? Or how do I screw their lives up to get them there? Um, I'm a believer, you know, I, I'm a Christian and we have a belief that God knew the end before the beginning. And so I think as a storyteller, I should know the ending, you know, I should know the end of my story first so I can get this character there um, so that I can help them navigate to this end goal. So like now with the book I'm working on, I know the ending. I knew the ending from the very beginning and I'm working my way towards first? it. Do you actually write the ending first? No, no, I don't. I don't. Because what I, 
I tell myself is that while I know what I want the ending to look like, I'm not going to marry myself to it. The wonderful thing about writing fiction is you get to know these characters and you get to develop them. And sometimes they take turns and become uh, people that you didn't expect. And while I have an idea of how I want it to end, I'm also open to different endings. So I try not to write the ending. I try not to box myself into a specific ending and allow myself to explore this story and figure out how to get them to the point that I think I want them to be at. But if it changes, if it's something else that happens, that's totally fine. That is absolutely fine by me. Um, And I, I do look forward to writing the endings though. If I come up with an ending in my head that I really like, um, part of the motivation for getting through the rest of the book is getting to write the end. So I have a lot of writers ask me that, how do you stay motivated to keep writing, to keep writing? Come up with an ending that will be exciting to write and you'll be motivated to get to that point. And if you discipline yourself to say, hey, I'm not gonna write the end till I'm actually at the end, you know, it'll help getting to that point be so much easier and so much more fulfilling. So that that's my little tip tip for <laughs> for fiction writers. I just want to say the money quote for me from the hate you give is uh she says I can call Garden Heights the ghetto all I want nobody else can. And I always say like I can tell a Jewish joke, you can't. You can tell a black right. joke. When people are like why can they use the n word and I can't? Well, it's actually not that complicated. I can tell exactly. a Jewish joke, you can't. It's not that complicated. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I mean, we we do it with our family too. We can talk crap about our families all we want, but let somebody else do it. You know, um, we, we have a problem with it. So yeah, it, it's in that same vein. It's in that same vein. We, we are okay with being the butts of the jokes as long as we're the ones making the jokes. Exactly. Um, wait, final, final question. Do you have moments where you're like, how the hell did this happen? Like, how did this, <laughs> this is insane. Like this is in, do you have moments where you're just like, have you had a moment? Did you have a first like, did you have a moment where you're like, holy crap, what the, what? I was working in a church. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. This was a short story. Did you have that moment? I did. I did. That moment came from me when we were, my mom and I drove from Mississippi to Atlanta to see them film The Hate You Give. And we dropped all of our stuff off at the hotel and we're going to the set and they were filming in a neighborhood in Atlanta and they were doing some outside scenes that day and they had a lot of extras. And I was driving through this neighborhood in Atlanta, had the windows down because it was a nice day. And I could hear in the distance people chanting justice for Khalil, justice for Khalil. And I had to pull over because I realized I was approaching the set. Those were the extras chanting words from my book. And I had to pull over for a second and just get myself together. Then I drove and ended up getting to set and I see hundreds of extras. I see all of these crew people, all of these cameras. Um, I see the church where they're having the funeral scene and the church has a sign on it that was made with the name of the church that I created in the book. And suddenly I'm standing in my book. That moment was phenomenal because all of a sudden I'm standing in a place that I imagined while sitting at a desk at a church working. Um, I'm standing here seeing this scene come to life. I'm seeing hundreds of people bring to get, bring something to life that came, I came up with in my head. There's, there's no feeling quite like that. It's so 
it's so humbling too, because you realize all these people came together. They're taking time out of their day to do something that you came up with. That's phenomenal. So that was the, oh, holy moly moment for me. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm getting ready to do it again. We're filming on the come up soon. And I'm like, it's going to get me again. It's never going to get old for me. I hope it never gets old for me. That, that moment of stepping onto a set and seeing what started in my head come to life around me. There's is it hard to, like it. is it hard to surrender creative control as you watch? Something <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. It is. But the beautiful thing for me has been that I've given my work to capable hands that I trust. Yeah. Um, anytime with the hate you give film, anytime there were changes made while I wasn't a decision maker, I was told about these things and given um, explanations as to why. And I trusted the director. I trusted the screenwriter. I trusted the studio and the producers. So I knew it was in great hands. Um, it, it's again, it's kind of like kind of like that baby bird or my favorite analogy for it is books and movies are like. Um, this is like the parent trap. And these are two twins that have been separated at birth. One's being raised by my publisher. The other's being raised by the film people. And I'm just the grandparent who can give advice. So I'm going to give that grandparently advice, but that doesn't mean that the parents have to listen. <laughs> if it were, if it were a true Hollywood story, some slick producer would come up to you and say, love the book, love the book. We're thinking stars, a white girl on Connecticut, but otherwise it's great. We love it. <laughs> Craft services is over there. I'm so glad that didn't happen. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, honestly, I, I, I am so freaking happy for your success. I really am. Thank and you. I think it is so well-deserved. I think you're a brilliant writer, not just a brilliant young African-American, but like you're a brilliant freaking writer. You are a great Thank writer. You. And it's nice to see other writers doing so well. So I, uh, and I really, I really appreciate you doing this. And you made my daughter's day on her, on her high school graduation. So I appreciate it a whole lot. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I've enjoyed today. So this is a great way to start the day. I want to thank today's guest, Angie Thomas, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Angie on Twitter at Angie C. Thomas and visit her website at AngieThomas.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Sling and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make literally no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the awesome MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>